0: You may be seated. Well, we're continuing in our study of the Psalms that we've been doing this summer. We've got a few more left, and we're going to launch a new series on the book of Ephesians on that September 9th, which is our one-year birthday. Um, We're really excited about that. It's hard to believe, if you've been with us that long, that it's already passed, that it's already been a year since we started worshiping in this building. Psalm 100, if you see the title there in your bulletin, the title of this sermon is, How Do We Come to Worship? We oftentimes think about that in terms of how should we come dressed for worship. And we usually answer that kind of in churches where we say, well, come as you are, right? Right? Although, come as you are only really works if as you are is the same way that everybody else are, right? Because if you come as you are and it's totally different, you're going to feel pretty out of place. Like, remember that time I wore a tie and everybody kind of looked at me funny? There was one time I remember where I was going to church. My stepmom took me to church. We were kind of in a hurry. Uh, we pulled up into the parking lot and she looked down and she saw that I wasn't wearing any socks. And in her mind... Well, the way you're supposed to come to church definitely includes wearing socks, and so uh, we pulled out of the parking lot and went right back home. And we didn't—we didn't even go to church that day because I wasn't wearing. We weren't coming in if I wasn't wearing socks. Now, obviously, that lesson did not take, but you know, she tried. Psalm 100 is an interesting one, I think, to answer this question: How do we come to worship? First of all, because uh, many scholars will tell you that there's a high probability that Psalm 100 was actually used as an entrance liturgy. As actually a song or, or something that God's people would recite as they were coming in to worship. You heard me read, uh, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Well, those gates and courts are the temple. Gates and courts in the Old Testament, and so what Psalm 100 is saying is, as we come in here to worship, this is what we're doing: we're praising God. So it was even a pattern for them; it was it was something that they would use in their worship service. But the great thing about Psalm 100 is it's not only a, a psalm used in worship for worship, but it really teaches us a lot about worship. It teaches us a lot about. How we come to worship God. How we come to the presence of God when we gather together. And we're going to talk about four things, four ways that we come to worship. And three of them are kind of answering that how. How do we come to worship? And the final one really is about why. So let's talk through this. First of all, how do we come to worship? Well, we come to worship engaged. We come engaged. What do I mean by that? Well, look at this first stanza. And by the way, those four things, there's four stanzas in this uh, in this psalm. It probably stands out if you're looking at a Bible. It's not printed that way in our bulletin. But if you've got your Bible open before you, you can see that there's four stanzas or four verses. And each of kind of our, our, um, our four ways that we're going to look at comes out of one of these stanzas. And the first one comes out of the first stanza. Listen to what this psalmist says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. When we were studying this psalm earlier this week with uh, with my staff team, Kathy asked, uh, what kind of noise do you think he's talking about? What kind of noise is a joyful noise? Well, yeah, singing certainly is part of it. And I got news for you. Actually, the answer is not super Presbyterian sounding, okay? Because the word that's used there for noise, for joyful noise, is a loud, exuberant cry like a battle cry. And even if you look down at that word singing, the word for singing that's used is talking about loud, exuberant singing. I want you to think of two kind of pictures in your head for a second. The first picture is this. It's a pretty little bird sitting on a limb early in the morning and singing out this beautiful little song. And you've got your coffee and the breeze, the cool breeze is blowing, which means you're not in New Braunfels probably, but it's a, it's a beautiful morning and a beautiful song, okay? That's, that's picture number one. Picture number two that I want you to picture is any scene in Braveheart, Okay? <laughs> And like, there's are these burly men, and they've got paint all over their faces, and they have just come back from a battle which they've won, and they are saying, FREEDOM! Now I want you to take the picture of the bird, and crumble it up and throw it away. Because that's not what we're talking about. When Psalm 100 talks about a joyful noise, when it talks about singing, it is talking about exuberant, full-throated, full-singing, joyful Noise to the Lord. Uh, if you know anything about college basketball, you know that the Duke and North Carolina rivalry is, it's got to be the biggest in all of college basketball, right? I mean, I think even people who aren't Duke or Carolina fans would say, it's the best rivalry in all of college basketball. And, you know, the two schools are like 30 miles apart or something like that, and they're both, you know, traditionally great basketball programs, and so whenever they whenever they play, it's like Clash of the Titans. And it's especially great when they play at Duke, I think, because uh, the the place where they play, it's called Cameron Indoor Stadium, and it seats like 10 people, I think, right? And nine of them are students who have probably done a decent amount of pre-gaming beforehand. So it is rowdy. It is loud and rowdy. And they don't need any encouragement. But I just want to read you this that I found that that the students at Duke actually last year got this email from the administration about the North Carolina game, encouraging them in how to cheer. It says this: "This is the game that you've been waiting for." By the way, there's some nice stuff about being nice to the opposing team, and I kind of edited that out. But you know that was in there. This is the game that you've been waiting for. No excuses. Give everything you've got and we will walk away the victors. Cameron should never be less than painfully loud tonight. Especially coming out of timeouts. We need to be incredibly loud. Are you catching the drift here? During their free throws in the second half, forget the novelty stuff. Just be unbelievably loud. This is a huge game. Stay in the bleachers and go nuts you remember when Mack Brown came to Texas as head coach I think it was 1998 he had these uh, these three words these, this, this phrase this three part phrase that he that he gave to fans of this is what it's like to come to a football game you remember it come early be loud stay late that's what he wanted the fans to know come early be loud stay late that's good advice for a football game that's also really good advice for church service come early be loud stay late Why is it that we can go to a football game or a basketball game and we can pour our hearts out and we can scream and yell and we can throw our arms up exuberantly when someone scores a touchdown or a three-pointer? But then we come and we sing of the wonderful, forgiving grace of Christ that has washed us of our sin, that has opened eternity for us, that has truly given us life and changed our hearts, the greatest news that's ever happened to the world. And we sit with a little mousy voice, quiet and reserved. The Lord is calling us to joyfully, exuberantly sing His praises. Now, that being said, let me also say that that doesn't mean, just because you engage your emotions, that you leave your mind at the door. In fact, if you'll look actually a little bit later in this psalm, it says, know that the Lord is God. So that connection between head and heart is what we're talking about as far as engagement. And it's not all just happy clappy either. If you look just two psalms over, this is how Psalm 102 starts. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. We've read actually a lot of those kind of psalms this summer. In fact, in our worship service, we have a very particular flow and order to it. Where we get to come and we praise God for who He is. We we really kind of unleash our praises on Him. But then we turn and we look a little more inwardly. We confess our sins. We mourn. We mourn the state of the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of our hearts. And then we get to celebrate His goodness, His forgiveness, His faithfulness. Let me just wrap up this one by just saying this. When you sing praises to the Lord, I want to hear it. When you confess, I want to hear it when you rejoice over His forgiveness, let's do it in an engaged, exuberant, emotionally honest, and fully bodily, mind, emotions, heart, engaged way. That's what I mean when I say we come to worship engaged. Alright, how about number two? We also come to worship as those who belong. Look at this second stanza. Verse 3, "...know that the Lord, He is God." It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. There's a lot going on there actually kind of under the surface even of those words because um, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe you're new to Christianity and you're looking at your Bible and you're saying, okay, I see Lord, but why is it in small caps? I got a big uppercase L and the O-R-D are capitals, but they're smaller. Why does it look like that? Well there is a simple answer to that is any time that you see the word lord in small caps in the bible what the word that it's translating in english is yahweh god's personal covenant name that he revealed to moses and his people in the old testament in fact you see both lord and god in this verse and god is the more general term for who god is lord yahweh being the very specific one My point is, it's a personal name. It is the name that God revealed to His people when He said, You are mine. So when we address God, we don't simply address Him kind of like, you know, He's the the unmoved mover, right? Or He is the intelligent designer, or He is the great spirit. We're not talking about some just kind of big, general idea and understanding of a God. We are talking about this God Our God, who has rescued us, who has made us His own. The psalmist goes on to say, know that we are His. We belong to Him. We're the sheep of His pasture. If you could summarize this entire stanza in any word, it would be belonging. That's what he's talking about. Belonging. Belonging is a concept that I think looms over us as people and as a culture in incredible ways. We are human beings. This is one of the fundamental things I think about human, human nature and human beings is that we long to belong to something. We want to be a part of something. I, why do you see so many bumper stickers on cars? Now, there's a lot of reasons people have bumper stickers, but it's my opinion that one of the primary ones is that we want to be a part of something. When I put a sticker on my car that celebrates the football team that I cheer for or the college I went to, a lot of it is because I want to be a part of that group. I want to go to that game and be a part of this whole group that's cheering in unison. When I put on a shirt from a concert, I'm not only saying I like this band, what I'm also saying is I'm kind of part of the group of people who likes this band. We want to belong, whether it's music, or sports, or some sort of club, or whatever it is, or lifestyle. I have talked to to multiple young men who grew up, and as boys, they didn't feel like they fit in the category of boy that they were given by their culture. And they felt something was kind of wrong. And when they looked around at other boys, they thought, you know, I don't seem it doesn't seem like I belong, I don't seem like I fit with this category that my culture has given me. And maybe in addition to that, they feel some attraction to those of the same sex as they are. This happens with boys and girls. And so what happens is this young man or this young woman grows up with this deep feeling of not belonging to the gender that they were born with. And one of the things that I think is so compelling, particularly about the LGBT community, is that they come to that person with that confusion, and they say, you know what, we feel the same way. And in fact, you now belong with us. We will love you and care for you. That deep It's that deep sense of belonging that is the attraction. It's not a carefully argued moral idea. It is the idea of belonging. We long to belong to something. As Christians, we long to belong, and oftentimes we forget that we do. We belong to Jesus. I hope you've seen the wonderful Pixar movie, Toy Story. I think it may be their best movie. It is a fabulous movie. It's a movie about about toys, and they kind of, you know, take on a life of their own. They become animated in themselves, and it's it's really about these two uh, primary characters, main characters, Woody, who's kind of the established toy, who's this cowboy, and the new guy on the block, who is Buzz, who's a intergalactic space ranger. And for about half of the movie, Buzz has no idea that he's a toy and he thinks he's a real intergalactic space ranger right he thinks that he is ridding the world fighting you know of evil fighting against you know the evil overlord zurg and so it's it's really a story about about buzz kind of coming to grips with who he is and there's this really poignant moment where buzz finally realizes like hey you know the laser gun that i have in my arm is just a little light and you know this little helmet that i put on doesn't keep me safe from space because i'm not in space and i can't really fly and he, he he comes to grips with that, and it crushes him. And he begins to think, you know, um, I am just—I've realized that I am just an insignificant toy. But there's a really poignant discussion between Woody, the old toy, and Buzz, kind of the new kid on the block. And one of the things that Woody says to him is so beautiful. He says this: He says, "Buzz, you must not be thinking clearly. Look over in that house. There's a kid." who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you are his. And he says, look at your foot. Pick up your foot and look whose name is written there. And under his foot it says, Andy. He belongs to that boy. That sense of belonging is something that we struggle with so often. But let me just remind you, if you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus. You belong to the Lord. He has made you His. He has stamped His name upon you. And I think a lot of us, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we think in our hearts, like, I know the Lord loves me. I know Jesus has died for me. I know He's forgiven me. But I really would be so much happier if that group of people over there would just give me all of their love and affection and if I would feel accepted by them. Friends, I get it. But let me remind you, you're already accepted. You already belong. You have the mark of the King of Kings written on your heart. Let's turn to the third thing that we see about worship here. Not only that we come engaged and we come belonging, but we also come thankful. Look at this third stanza. Listen again. Verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Just a little lesson about uh, the way the Psalms are written. They're poetry. And so oftentimes what you find is things that are kind of coupled together or repeated. So listen again. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, meaning come to worship with thanksgiving. And enter His courts, come to worship with Praise. Thanksgiving and praise. Second line. Give thanks to Him. Thanksgiving. And bless His name. Praise. Do you see what's being held together and repeated for us? Thanksgiving and praise. They go together. Thanksgiving and praise actually go hand in hand. If you have a really easy time with Thanksgiving, if you have built the pattern of thankfulness, of gratefulness in your heart, my guess is it's probably easy also for you to come and praise. But for some of us, that pattern of gratefulness and thanksgiving is hard. Maybe it's simply because of the hardness of our hearts, or also because it's hard to be grateful and thankful in difficult circumstances. I'm not familiar with um, Stephen Colbert. He's a comedian, talk show host, political kind of commentator. And uh, no matter what you think about Stephen Colbert, uh, he's got a fascinating story. Um, a fascinating man who is a Christian, he's a, uh, a very devout Roman Catholic, and who lost his father and two of his brothers in a plane crash when he was 10 years old. And so uh, from the age of 10, uh, he had an older sibling that was already out of the house, but from the age of 10, it was just he and his mom. No dad and no siblings. And he had to deal with that loss and with that suffering. And the way that his mom taught him how to handle that is really pretty fascinating. Listen, this comes from an interview with Colbert that was in in GQ. Listen what he says. When he was asked kind of how do you handle that kind of suffering at a young age, he said, I was raised in a Catholic tradition. That's my context for existence. It's that I'm here to know God to love God, to serve God, that we might be happy with each other in this world and happy with Him in the next. That makes a lot of sense to me. I got that from my mom and from my dad and from my siblings. And he goes on to talk about how seeing his mother handle the grief of losing her husband and two of her children really formed and shaped him and shaped particularly this idea of suffering and gratefulness going together. He says that he would watch his mom and she was deeply broken, she was incredibly sad. Oftentimes she was overwhelmed with grief, but he said she was never bitter. She was never bitter because she understood the connection between suffering and joy. She understood actually all of it in light of eternity. He goes on in this interview to say this. He describes a letter from J.R.R. R. Tolkien who wrote, "...what punishments of God are not gifts." And then Colbert's eyes, filled with tears, as he said, So it would be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it, but I can hold both of those ideas in my head. It takes a lot of work, honestly, to hold both of those ideas in your head. To be able to say, This is really terrible. It's difficult. I don't want it. But I'm also grateful for the Lord and what He is doing in me, and around me, and through me even. If that's something that you're having a hard time with today, if gratefulness, thankfulness is something that's taking a lot of work for you, let me just encourage you simply in this way. When the words of praise are hard for you to utter on your lips, maybe even hard for you to get in your head, just use these words. Just use the words from Psalm 100. And maybe pay particular attention to this fourth stanza. Which brings us to our last point. We've talked about the hows. This is now the why that we come to worship. Listen to this fourth stanza. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. The psalmist tells us that the Lord is three very particular things here. That He is good. That He is Steadfast loving, this is that Hebrew word, hesed, again, that's now shown up, I think, four times in the last four weeks. I didn't put together the series based on that word, but it's just everywhere. Maybe the most important word in the Old Testament. God's faithful, steadfast, loving, personal, covenant, kindness, and love to his people. So he is good, he is steadfast, and loving, and then finally, he is faithful. You know, it's really those three words even that I think empower the way that we look at these three other ways that we come to worship. Because if we are going to come as those who are engaged mentally, emotionally, physically, if we are going to be engaged in worship, then we are coming actually to be engaged with one who is good. You can't come fully engaged if you're afraid. You can't come fully engaged if you're insecure about the one you're coming to engage. You have to know that that person is not going to let you down. There's that really wonderful kind of quote uh, at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when when Lucy, the young girl, is talking to Mr. Beaver and they're talking about Aslan and Lucy somehow thinks that Aslan is a man. And the beaver reminds her, no, no, he's not a man, he's a lion. He is the great lion. And she says this. She says, um, You know, oh, I kind of wish that he were a man because I want to go talk to him. And so, is it okay? Is he safe? Is he quite safe for me to go and see? And I love the way the beaver responds. He says, um, Safe? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. But he is good. He is good. He is the king. That's what she needed to know. Not that he was safe, but that he was good. Our Lord is good. That's what enables us to fully engage him. Secondly, our Lord is faithful. And so we can actually come to him as thankful, grateful people because he is faithful to us. Meaning He is faithful continuously. You see the way that this ends, that He is faithful to all generations. His faithfulness continues to all generations. And boy, if you read your Old Testament, there's a lot of those generations that doesn't seem like they earned a lot of faithfulness there. It should have ended over and over and over and over, but it didn't. Because God is faithful. So we can actually come and be grateful and thankful because of that. And then finally... The steadfast, loving kindness of the Lord is actually what empowers our belonging. You may have heard me say this before, that, um, that in our church, we want people to be able to belong before they behave. Oftentimes in church, we think it's just the opposite. You come in, you kind of get your act together, you behave, then you can be part of who we are. Then you can belong. But that is exactly the opposite of the way that God has treated us. Because what the Gospel says is that we belong to Jesus not because we've performed, not because we've done something to earn it, not because we've behaved well, but because He is loving. Because His love displayed on the cross in Christ, pouring out His blood to wash over us and cleanse us from our sin, that love is steadfast. It is loving it is merciful. It is based not on who we are, but it's actually given to us in spite of it. Friends, as you come to worship, even the rest of our worship today, and going forward, let me just remind you to come as those who are engaged to come as those who are thankful and grateful for what God has done, but even more so, come as those who have the stamp of the King of Kings on not just your foot, but your heart, where He has said, You are mine. I love you. I love you forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come and worship You, to celebrate our belonging before You, to celebrate the love, the mercy, the grace, the steadfast faithfulness that You have shown to us. Lord, I pray that that You would soften our hearts, that this good news would sink in. So oftentimes that we hear such wonderful news and then it just kind of stops at our head. Would let it sink in. Show us what it means to live as those who are loved, to live as those who belong, to live as those who are a thankful, grateful people singing your praises. We do pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.